Well, I want you to know I feel right at home here at Harborside, the church I served for a decade in southwest Indiana, Crossroads Christian Church, located on the Ohio River, not the Gulf of Mexico, but a close second. I uh, served that church for a decade, and it was a church very much like this. Uh, We had three services on a weekend. They were all full. People were excited, up on the edge of their seats, ready to worship the Lord, ready to then go out and serve the Lord. And I've been so impressed with your men in our retreat Friday and Saturday and with your entire church family, three services here this morning. During my growing up years, there was a poster hanging on my north bedroom wall. It was a beautiful picture of a sunrise with two words inscribed over it. Perhaps today. And then at the bottom of the poster were the last recorded words of Jesus in Revelation 22:20. 20. Yes, I am coming soon. And that poster served as a perpetual reminder to me as a young man that at any time Christ could return and God's eternal day would dawn. And I can remember often lying on my side and staring at that poster. It was the first thing I saw. As I awakened in the morning, it was the last thing I saw before falling asleep at night. And I'm convinced that that poster caused my most disturbing nightmare and at the same time inspired my most euphoric dream. I remember the nightmare that Christ returned. And I stood with my arms stretched upward, but I was not rising to meet the Lord in the air. Others, my family and friends, were going to heaven, and I was left behind. And I woke up the next morning with a feeling of dejection and sadness that I cannot begin to describe to you, a feeling of abandonment a feeling of aloneness. You know how real dreams can be. That was my aftertaste of that dream. But then I also remember dreaming another time that Christ returned, and as I stood with arms extended, I was lifted up weightless through the clouds into the presence of the Lord, and I awoke the next morning with a feeling that I can only describe as ultimate joy, and peace, a feeling I have experienced few times in my life. Now, I realize all this is subjective, and it may not be helpful to you, unless that is, you have had a similar experience, and many have. I think it's because we all know innately that the most important question we resolve, the most important verdict we render in life is whether we choose the destiny that God desires for us, heaven forever in His presence, or whether we by default are left with the dark destiny of separation from God forever. But this morning, I want to accentuate the positive. I want to eliminate the negative. So I'm going to try this morning to unveil heaven, to draw back the veil between us and the greater life. 
in Revelation 21 and 22, I want you to see it in a way this morning that will make heaven irresistible to you from this day on. Now, as a younger man, I can tell you at times, heaven wasn't always that appealing to me. Sure, I wanted to go to heaven one day, but just not yet. And it's because I had the same shallow, immature perspective of heaven that Matt Proctor writes about in these words. He says, as a kid, my middle picture of heaven went something like this. You die, go through the pearly gates, get your wings, your halo, and a hymn book, and you join the heavenly choir. And the choir director instructs us all to open our hymn books to hymn number one. We're going to sing all four verses, he announces. No skipping the third verse. We're going to sing our way straight through the hymn book. And when we get to the end, we're going to start all over again at the beginning. Now, to me, not being in a choir and not really being strong on vocal music, it didn't appeal much. Heaven sounded to me like one interminable church service. I like the way C.S. Lewis thoughtfully responds to this shallow view of heaven in his classic book, Mere Christianity. He says, there's no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they do not want to spend eternity playing a harp. The answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books that are written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. <laughs> All scriptural imagery, harps, crowns, gold, etc., is, of course, merely a symbolic attempt to describe something that is indescribable, to express something that is inexpressible. The harp is mentioned because many people love music, and it's the thing in this present life that often suggests ecstasy and joy, and crowns are mentioned to suggest the fact that those who are united with God in eternity will share in His splendor, they'll share in His power. Gold is mentioned to suggest the timelessness of heaven because gold does not rust and the preciousness of it. Gold is the standard of wealth on earth. And people who take these symbols literally, C.S. Lewis says, might as well think that when Christ told us to be as harmless as doves, He meant for us to also lay eggs. Revelation 22 verse 20 teaches us to pray. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And we say yes, yes, but just not now. Now, for me, when I was a young man, it was because I wanted to go to heaven after I got a Mickey Mantle baseball card for my baseball card collection, or to have Christmas with my cousins, or go to middle school camp, or compete in the state tournament, or go to college, or get married, buy a house, have children, maybe travel around the world, and then maybe I'll be ready. But listen, folks, we must not get too attached to this world and forget about, about heaven because when that happens, one of two problems will result. First of all, we'll be tempted to live only for the here and now. You forget about heaven and you're stuck with the here and now. And some people opt for that. And they immerse themselves in intellectualism, in hedonism, in materialism, in careerism. And they fill their life with that, their years with that, and totally forget God. 
or just as bad, we will approach the Christian life with self-serving motives. Church is good for my business contacts. It's good to advance my respectable image in the community. Christianity just becomes a way for me, for me to have a healthier lifestyle, emotional stability, a better marriage, moral children. But A.J. Conyers wrote, The reality of heaven and hell prevent theology from becoming pop psychology. Or if we get too attached to this world and forget about heaven, we'll not only be tempted to live just for the here and now, but we'll also surrender to hopelessness because the material world, this world, will not satisfy your soul. It cannot satisfy your soul. You've seen the bumper sticker, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no hope. No Jesus, N-O, no Jesus. No hope. And hopelessness accounts for a lot of alcoholism, the abuse of drugs, a lot of sexual affairs as a way of escape. Hopelessness also accounts for 30%, the 30% increase in suicide among middle-aged adults in the last decade. P.T. Forsyth said it this way, If within us we find nothing over us, we will succumb to what is around us. So what is there? In the book of Revelation, to energize us, to inspire us to find heaven irresistible now while we live, there are three descriptions of heaven that capture our imagination in Revelation chapter 21, chapter 22, where we hear about heaven as a home, as a city, and as a paradise. First, as a home. Listen to the language of Revelation 21, verse 2. Listen to the home-related language there. Coming down out of heaven from God, that is heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He who overcomes will inherit all this. I will be their God. They will be my children. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, the bride, the spirit and the bride say, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. A lot of home language laced into the words there in that passage. And the foundation of every home begins with a wedding. And we're talking here in this passage about the marriage of a bride and a groom. Revelation 19, 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, that's we, has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Only when we get to heaven will we truly be home. We're not going to be at home in this body, in this world, in this life. Now, there's no feeling like coming home after a long absence. I remember as a young man working on the farm, coming home at the end of a day, dirty, tired, getting cleaned up, and sitting around a dinner table. It just was a special feeling. Coming in from a hard day's work to wash up, come to the table. Coming home from college for Thanksgiving dinner with the family. It's not so much the physical house as it is the people. Well, Scripture says there's a table set 
in heaven, and your name, your name is written on one of the place cards. And Jesus sits at the head of the table, and everyone who has submitted to his love and lordship will be there. So I will sit down across from my brother-in-law, Bill, who died at age 28 of liver cancer. And I'll sit across from my grandparents, and I'll sit across from my dad, who passed four years ago, and my father-in-law, who passed eight years ago. And I will sit down across from my lifelong close friend, Nolan, whose funeral I had three years ago. And everyone at that table will be radiating the inexpressible joy of the saved, who will be seated at the table in your eternal home. Samuel Morrison invested 25 years of his life as a widower serving Christ in Africa. He eventually retired from missionary service, returned to America to live out his days. As it happened, he traveled back to the States on the same ocean liner that brought President Teddy Roosevelt back from a hunting expedition. When the great ship sailed into New York Harbor, the dock where it was tied up was jammed with what looked like the entire population of the city. Bands were playing, banners were waving, balloons were being released into the air, flashbulbs were popping, and Mr. Roosevelt walked down the gangplank to thunderous applause and cheers. All this fanfare, while Samuel Morrison quietly shuffled off the boat, no one was there to greet him, he slipped through the crowd, with the crush of people he could not get a cab, and he had to carry his luggage and walk. And silently, he complained. Lord, the president has been in Africa for three weeks, killing animals, and the whole country turns out to welcome him home. I've given 25 years of my life serving you in Africa. No one even knows I'm here. And then, in the stillness of his own heart, a gentle, loving whisper, but my son... You aren't home yet. (laughs) Now, I know the reference to home doesn't do it for some of you. Your home was not stable, loving, accepting, happy, comforting, secure. Your needs were not met. Your burdens were not relieved. Your faith was not nurtured. It was not a place where your spoken and unspoken questions about God could be responsibly answered. And friend, I can only promise you that your appreciation for heaven will be greater than some of the rest of us because you were deprived of a home in this life. In your heavenly Father's house are many rooms and He has prepared one for you and one day Jesus has promised to come again and personally escort you into His home, your final home. So, has your life been a series of struggles? Have you been more sick Than well? Have you been more defeated than successful? Have you been more tired than rested? Have you been more alone than befriended? More empty than satisfied? More hungry than filled? More discouraged than happy? Look up. Look up. And look ahead. Jesus is preparing you a heavenly home. And just look at what he did in only seven days of creation. Can you imagine 
what over 2,000 years of preparation could produce. Heaven is our ultimate home in the deepest and truest and strongest sense of all that word means. But it's also a city. Revelation 21, verse 2, John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's shown with the glory of God. Its brilliance was like jasper, clear as crystal. The city was laid out like a square. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. On no day will its gates be shut, for there will be no night there. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven as a city. Now, uh, my wife and I, a couple of years ago, visited several European cities. And I'm telling you, this metaphor of heaven being a city doesn't really seem all that appealing to me. But I've been to the city of Rome recently. It's very crowded with cars and motorized vehicles parked every which way, graffiti everywhere on the buildings and the fences. And then Venice with its hordes of expressionless people coming and going, pushing and shoving without common courtesy as they move through the narrow alley-like streets. Istanbul with the mournful wail of the Muslim clerics calling 17 million people to prayer five times a day on loudspeakers. You can't even carry on a conversation in public. And it's bizarre with 4,000 shops, vendors and beggars and pickpockets trying to separate you from your wallet or your purse. Cities, they're noisy with self-assertion. Cities tend to be forgetful of God. They tend to be defiant of God. Cities are exploitative. They are abusive. You've been watching the news last couple of years to see what's been happening in the cities of Ferguson, Missouri, and Dallas, Texas, and Charleston, South Carolina, Orlando, Florida, Chicago, Illinois, Portland, Oregon. And my wife and I on the way down here drove through Atlanta. Have you folks ever seen the traffic around the city of Atlanta? Unbelievable. And we have the treat of going back through it later today. Heaven surely should get us as far away from that kind of thing as possible, don't you think? When I think of heaven, I identify heaven with the beauty of a serene, quiet garden, the majesty of the mountains, the peace of the countryside. Haven't we had quite a bit, quite enough of cities on earth? And Jerusalem, please, I've been to Jerusalem. It's a cramped city. It's quite without splendor. Rude, violent, infiltrated by every kind of belief system that is hostile to the Christian gospel. Jerusalem is perhaps the most unlikely city on planet earth to compare to heaven. But listen, this is the new, the new Jerusalem. 
That's not the one that Jesus wept and prayed over because of its hard-heartedness and unrepentance. This is not the Jerusalem of dirty streets and murderous alleys and adulterous bedrooms and corrupt courts and hypocritical synagogues and commercialized churches and thieving tax collectors and angry mobs. This is the new Jerusalem. All marriages are healthy and all children are safe. And those who have much give generously to those who have little. And Israeli and Palestinian children play together on the West Bank and their parents build each other homes. Imagine a city where offices and boardrooms, in offices and boardrooms, executives scheme to help their colleagues succeed and compliment them behind their backs. Where tabloids are filled with the accounts of courage and moral purity and moral beauty. And talk shows feature mothers and daughters who love each other deeply. And wives give birth to their husbands' children. No need for DNA testing. Maury Povich, fresh out of a job. <laughs> a city where disagreements are settled with grace and humility and civility. And there's no need for doctors. And there's no need for lawyers and no need for private detectives and no need for pastors. Because there are no diseases, no lawsuits. There are no secret lives of shame and no lost people. And pizza is non-fat and low in cholesterol. And doors have no locks, and cars have no burglar alarms, and schools do not have metal detectors or a police presence or even hall monitors. And at recess, every kid gets picked first for a team. And churches don't split, and people are never bored nor stressed, and divorce courts and battered women's shelters are turned into recreation centers, and people only speak to each other words of encouragement and affection, and appreciation, and affirmation. No one is lonely. No one is afraid. And people of different races value each other and honor each other and uphold each other. And they're enriched by their differences and united in their common humanity. Now, the New Jerusalem will far exceed any utopian city we can conjure up in our imagination. And in the center of that incomparable community that we can only dream about will be its magnificent architect and the most glorious resident, Jesus the Lamb. And the celestial city is 1,400 miles long, 1,400 miles high. 1,400 miles wide, a perfect square, not crowded, more than big enough to accommodate us all. It is light-filled and life-giving, and all those who inhabit this city will constantly bask in the undiluted, undistorted presence of God. But notice who won't be in the city. Revelation 21.8, but the cowardly the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice the magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. 
Nothing impure will ever enter it, the city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and they are written there by our choice. God's already indicated He wants our name there. No mistrust in the New Jerusalem. No taking advantage of anyone else. No exploitation, victimization. Are you irresistibly attracted to heaven yet? Are you ready to go today? It's a home. It is a home. And it is a city unlike any we've ever seen. And finally, you should know heaven is unveiled as a paradise. Revelation 21 verse 4. He, that is our heavenly Father, will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Revelation in 21 and 22 sounds a whole lot like Genesis 1 and 2, doesn't it? Everything's come full cycle. God's people have restored access to the tree of life. Once again, as in Eden, God's original intent, no pain, no death. No sin, no curse. This is echoes of Eden we're talking about here in Revelation 21 and 22. Paradise, once lost, now restored. And the sin-ruined creation of Genesis is restored in the sacrifice-renewed creation we see in the book of Revelation. God's going to be in eternal close communion with the people. He loves the people who love Him. It's a covenant relationship. So I want to close with the invitation found in Revelation 22, verse 17. The Spirit, that's talking about the Holy Spirit, capital S. The Spirit of God and the bride, that is this church, say to you today, Come, come, and let him who hears say, come, whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I wonder if that might be you today. Do you have the hope of heaven? Not talking about something ethereal here, not talking about something unreal here, not talking about something fictitious here. This is rock-solid teaching from the mouth of Jesus and the apostle whom he loved, John, revealing to us what heaven is like. It's not some superficial sitting on a cloud and strumming on a harp. It's deeper, truer, purer, sweeter, and it's available to every one of us. And if you're here today, won't you come? Will you let 
the Spirit of God draw you? And will you let the invitation of this church for you to come and be a part of them? Will you let it reach you and penetrate maybe years, maybe decades of resistance? What's going to change today in your life? Anything? Because we've drawn back the veil together and we've seen what God has in store for us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. We have prayer counselors who will be positioning themselves around the front and sides of our worship center today. If you have a decision to make, if you have a a prayer partner need, before you leave today, why don't you make your way to one of these good people? who are anxious to talk with you, counsel with you, pray with you and for you. Will you stand with me for prayer? Father, thank you for the refreshment of this hour to enthrone you on our praises, to open your word, receive truth, to open our lives to the work of your Spirit. Lord, it's just uh, so good. I love the Lord's Day. I love Sundays because of what happens when we assemble. We enthrone you on our praises. We worship you. We open our lives to you. And thank you, Father, for drawing back the veil on the place that you have prepared. Jesus had a lot to say about it. And I know, Lord, that what you had in Eden is what you want for your people in the greater life. And so we embrace that today from our hearts. And we say with John, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. God bless you as you go.